0: Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. We see the word peptides present in many things. A lot of health and cosmetic products contain different peptides for many uses, such as their potential anti-aging, anti-inflammatory or muscle-building properties. But what actually are peptides and what else can they do? Dr. Troy Attard is a part-time application specialist in the Melbourne Protein Characterization Platform at the Bio21 Institute, University of Melbourne. His specialty is peptide synthesis. Troy is also senior scientist at Mimotopes, a company that supplies peptides and related materials to research and industry. As if that wasn't enough, Troy is also a first-year chemistry tutor at three different university-affiliated colleges, where he teaches several chemistry subjects. Dr Andy Horvath sat down for a Zoom chat with peptide expert Dr Troy Athard.
1: Troy, you're in charge of a peptide lab. What are peptides?
2: They're basically short proteins, um, which are chains of amino acids that are joined head to tail, a little bit like links in a chain, uh, and that's, uh, that's that's pretty much what a peptide is.
1: I know proteins are involved in every cell of our body. They're from metabolic to communication to how things interact in our body. So why are peptides important?
2: Uh, well, well, peptide research is important because they they make that, that study of proteins or they facilitate that study um, because peptides can be thought of as fragments of, of the protein. So you can, you can identify the important part of the protein that it might bind to a receptor or it might bind to another protein and thereby switch it on. You can identify that important little part of the segment and you can synthesise it as a peptide because actually isolating proteins is quite an involved Process and, and sometimes uh, getting access to the proteins that you're interested in can be can be quite difficult. So it can be uh, more convenient to to make the segment of the protein the interesting bit, the the active bit, if you like. And so uh, that's how peptide fields have emerged. And of course. Peptides also, um, they're very interesting molecules in their own right. And there are what you would call peptides that are natural in the body as well. Insulin is an example of a peptide. It's two peptide chains that are joined by a couple of bridges. Um, And so there are a lot of small proteins that you would consider peptides. And they do, um, uh, well, they have all manner of functions in in the body. So, uh, and you can manipulate them uh, for whatever purpose um, you'd like. Uh, such as, um, or just just basic research. If you want to uh, investigate what parts of a protein are involved, you can make a whole range of uh, of peptides that represent that area, and you can you can assay them and, and test which ones are, are important for binding to whatever that binding partner might be. Uh, and then you can play around with the sequence. You can uh, you can sort of mutate different parts of that peptide to see which parts of that segment are most important to the the protein and so just by doing this basic research you can you can build up a profile and you get more knowledge about the interactions that are going on in the cell so when you come across a problem such as uh, well the classic one is cancer of course um, the more you know about that mechanism the the better a position you'll be in uh, to develop uh, a therapeutic for example.
1: Okay so By modifying peptides or analysing them, you can make them stickier, you can make them coil more, you can make them target things, and that way you can control the action of peptides. Have I got it right?
2: Uh, Yes, that's right. They're they're very versatile. And the good thing about peptides too is that they're they're very specific for their target and and you can join or you can attach a lot of things onto the peptides because of their structure. It's like they've got a whole lot of little uh, chemical hooks. I'll give you an interesting example of some of the work that's going on here at Bi 21 One or two groups are looking at, well, they're looking at using a particular peptide that binds to a receptor. Uh, and in, in this particular cancer that they're looking at, the cancer overexpresses that receptor on the surface of the cell. In other words, it makes many, many copies, much more than, than a healthy cell. And so, what what this group is doing, they're attaching some of these groups to the peptide. So, you know that the peptide, when placed in the bloodstream, will bind to these cancer cells. And what it's got attached with it is dragged along. So, um, one example is imaging. Uh, So, what you can do is you can attach a fluorescent group or or a group that, that, uh, a chemical group that gives off a signal under a scan, it it, it glows like it, it gives off a particular color. And when you attach it to that peptide and then place it in the body, that peptide will bind to the the cancer cells. And so when you screen uh, a patient, for example, you can look at the scan and you can see the bits that light up. You know are the areas that have the the high incidence of cancer cells or the high density of cancer cells. So you can use peptides as um, as deliverers
1: of cargo. That's a great story. So it's sort of a transport mechanism as well.
2: Yes, that's right, yeah. And and not only for imaging, you can also um, you can make these little molecular cages that are uh, just like uh, what, what the term suggests, they're little cages and with a cavity inside. Now, you can attach that to that peptide as well. And inside the cage, you can place what's called a radionuclide, which are uh, particular isotopes of different metals that give off radiation that that will kill cells but that radiation has only a short a short span it only it's only dangerous within a a small distance so when the peptide finds its its cancer target and binds associated with the peptide is this is this cell killing uh radionuclide and of course it will destroy the cells in the immediate vicinity which which are the cancer cells so that's
1: that's that's similar to the imaging approach. Troy give us a a case study of where you modify or identify or build proteins, or rather peptides?
2: Uh, Well, there was uh, one interesting project I was involved with uh, several years ago when I was working for the dental science department. Uh, We were looking at antimicrobial peptides. uh, And the background to that project was, it it all traced back to this, this little creature called an African clawed frog. And it was found that if you make little cuts or lacerations on its skin it, it seems a little bit mean you'd hope you hope it didn't hurt hurt the frog but uh, and then they placed it in an environment which is rich in bacteria like a, a dirty sort of pond situation uh, It was able to not only not get infected but it was able to heal itself and the agents that were identified that allowed it to do that were um, were antimicrobial peptides that it secreted on its skin. It, it gave it a defence against the bacteria. And so looking at these peptides, the, the next thought would be it's a natural product. How, how can we um, use that for our purposes? So I, I guess the, the bigger picture is um, trying to overcome uh, antibiotic resistance and, and and the emergence of superbugs. So peptides are, are thought of as a, as a very promising alternative uh, to antibiotics. And so we made a series of these peptides and and tested their activity against various um, bacteria and they're all oral pathogens because i was in the dental science department you wanted to um, to make sure that it was relevant to um, <laughs> to your area um, alongside this was also the knowledge that a lot of these peptides they coil up so they, they form almost like molecular springs if, if you like to think of it that way and it's that coiling that facilitated the killing of bacteria because these peptides punch holes in the, in the membrane of the bacteria and basically the guts leak out. Um, so that's the mechanism by which they work. So the idea was maybe we can take these peptides and modify them to coil even more. Uh, and so that's what we did. And, and we did find that we, we, there's various strategies that you can do that. We can add bits onto the peptide uh, and see what they do. And they, in a lot of cases, we actually increase their potency against um, some of these bacteria. Uh, the, the only problem is from that point on is how do we make it specific to attacking the bacteria because they also were very good at, at killing human cells. And so that's often when you um, when you find an answer in science, uh, there's another three problems that you have to overcome. Um, so so that was a very interesting um, project I was involved with.
1: Troy, tell us about how you got into the peptide area and I'm keen to know what was one of the memorable case studies that you worked on when you first started in this area?
2: I'll change that question to how did I get into science? Um, I I have some interesting hobbies and it was the love of nature that probably um, caused me to gravitate towards the science field, pardon the pun, because I, I, I have a, a large collection of carnivorous plants and I've kept reptiles with uh, pythons and tropical frogs and all sorts of things. So... So it was just that love of nature that, that sort of drew me to science. And then I think from that point on, as in, you see with a lot of cases, it's, it's actually driven by opportunity. So I didn't actually know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so the opportunities that, that were presented to me um, just led me down this pathway. And I ended up, I, I went through the biochemistry avenue. And a component of those projects when I did honours was making peptides and testing them, what what they did, and then from there I I, I found a position where I started to specialise in in making peptides, and that's that's sort of where I've stayed from that point on. And and I think maybe the the antimicrobial peptide project was was an example of one of the interesting projects. Another one was um, developing peptide vaccines um, again in the dental science department. That's an emerging field because peptides are seen as as very um, promising candidates for vaccines because they're smaller. They're most likely, or, or they're less likely, I should say, to, um, to elicit uh, an allergic response. Just thinking about details of that project. Basically, when you have an antigen that's invading the body, what the immune system sees is the surface of that antigen and the shape of it, and it, it'll attack that, and that's its recognition. So you can, you can take a large protein And you can just look at the peptides that make it up, the surface peptides, for example, and find out which of those surface peptides really gets the attention of the immune system. And then you can take those peptides and create a a vaccine construct just with the peptides that are components of the larger protein. So that's the the basic idea behind it. So that's that's still ongoing. I, I don't think there's a peptide vaccine on the market. I haven't checked for the last few years, but... Um, I think um, researchers are closing in on it.
1: Tell us about changes you've seen in the industry, like what has really evolved in your area of peptide biochemistry? I'm probably more, more in a position to comment on the
2: synthesis of peptides, I think, because as I collaborate with various people, I often just get little snippets of the, of the biological story and Generally, I've been involved in making the peptides that uh, the, say biochemists or biologists uh, require for their research. So I think probably the, the biggest changes or, or the, the most significant changes have been in the technology that allows you to assemble a, a peptide chain. So just, just to give, put that into context, uh, when I did my PhD, I, I manually assembled peptides as most people would have. Uh, and it wasn't really that long ago. Um, and so it would take about an hour to an hour and a half to attach the next amino acid in the chain. And, and so if you were making a, a, a peptide that was about uh, 20 amino acids long, it could take you three to four days if you're working nine to five to actually get that peptide. These days, it's done on a microwave synthesizer. So uh, the temperatures used are a lot higher, like 75 or 90 degrees and the chemistry is adjusted to cope with that heat. And so to put an amino acid onto the growing chain would take these days between two to four minutes. So that 20 amino acid peptide doesn't take three or four days anymore. It takes maybe an hour and a half to two hours, and you're done. So that, that's probably the most surprising change or, or stark change that I've noticed uh, across uh, over the years. And now we're relying on this sort of technology. It's very hard to go backwards. If you go into a lab that doesn't have one, um, it seems like you're going back into, uh, you know, ancient times.
1: So, Troy, you're kind of like the Lego master of peptides. You also yeah. work for industry. Tell us about that.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's that's really focused on synthesis too, the industry part. So a, a couple of days a week I'm working at um, Mimotopes, which are a peptide company, and they get, they get all sorts of requests. So uh, I'm the senior scientist there. And so the the jobs that come in or the the peptides that I help out with are the non-standard peptides where um, researchers have been quite creative in in their requests. And so um, I sit down with a a couple of people and we work out um, how we're going to put these peptides together. So that's basically um, the other part of my job is purely focused on making in an
1: economical way these challenging peptides. Troy, you know the old adage... You can't uncook a cake or you can't unboil an egg. Well, you're the peptide king, so I'm dying to ask you the question. A few years ago, science declared it can now uncook an egg. Okay, give us some insight to how on earth that's possible. Oh, uncooking an egg, yes. that's. Um, I suppose if
2: you think about the process of, of bo- it's actually boiling an egg. It's, it's a slightly different process to cooking. Okay, It it specifically has to be boiling an egg. what happens is the proteins inside that egg, uh, they have their their certain conformation and they're sort of in an ordered structure. And when you boil that egg, because of the heat, the proteins unfold. So they unfold into their linear conformations and it becomes like a tangled uh, bowl of sticky spaghetti, if you like. And so once that's sort of formed, which is the boiled egg situation, the egg white, um, it's very hard to, or it's up till this point in time. It has been considered, as the adage said, you can't unboil an egg. Uh, what that refers to is you can't retrieve those proteins back into their natural shape. But uh, this group of researchers was able to do that. Um, and, and this related to work that they were doing in the lab. They just used the egg as, as a difficult example. In other words, it was it was like a challenge. And if they could demonstrate um, retrieving those tangled proteins or some of them and, and isolating them back into their, their natural form, um, then that was like, um, that was proof of concept of this process. And so that that's what they did. And they did it using a, a vortex fluid device, which is like a spinning test tube. Um, and it, it seems quite simple w- when it's described, but uh, all, all it really is is a, a spinning test tube and, and they had to measure various angles, which is the best angle for spin and that type of thing. But it's like a, a spinning test tube on its end and the, the uh, egg solution uh, or, or the protein solution from the boiled egg would rise up the sides. And in doing so, those proteins would be, pull, would be pulled apart from that tangled mess. And not only that, in that environment, they'll, they'll refold into their natural natural conformation into their natural shape, and then they're collected at the top of the tube. So, of course, I, I should mention in that solution, there were um, some um, denaturing. It was a denaturing solution. So it did help to lubricate the peptide somewhat. But but that that represented a big jump in, in the technology because if you have a, a, a particular protein that you want to study, often you can get that um, made by particular cells. You can get cells to make that peptide, uh, that protein for you, but the preparation that you collect from the cells will be a, a mixture of misfolded proteins and correct proteins. So there's a real challenge there to, to, from that mixture to pull out the, the protein in the correct shape that you want. So this, uh, this technology demonstrated how you could take a difficult mixture of tangled up proteins and basically pull out the protein that you're interested in um, and have it be refolded back into the correct shape. Troy,
1: you've got lots of students in your lab um, because it's a very active laboratory. What advice do you have for your students?
2: Uh, well, a, a common question I get is, uh, well, it relates to uh, what should I do in my career? And I think my, my advice is actually talk to many people because everyone has different experiences. So if you, if you talk to me, I'll give you my experience. If you ask somebody else, they might have had a bad experience they might have had a mean supervisor or whatever. And so that'll colour the advice that they give. So a student should broaden their horizons in terms of who they, who they speak to. And so that's, that's getting advice. But if you're, if you're asking my advice, what I would tell them, I would say just follow what you're interested in. I, I think getting into this field, you, you have to take the opportunities that, that are presented to you. I've got an example, one student who I'm, I'm sort of mentoring from a couple of years ago, um, he's a very good student, he's got great marks, and he was he just wanted to have, um, he, or he wanted to get into a lab over summer just to get some benchtop experience, and it, it didn't really matter what what he was doing, and it was very difficult because he was up against other people or other students who were further advanced in their careers, so they had a great advantage over him. Eventually, he he landed a a position. I think it was for two months to go to New South Wales and study Antarctic mosses or Arctic mosses, uh, and and gain information on climate change based on these mosses that have been living for 500 years. And so, he, so he took that opportunity. Now he's he's probably not going to end up being a researcher of mosses, but that would have given him a lot of experience with exposure in the in the field of of research. So. I think you've got to take your opportunities and then land in the area that interests you while you're slowly deciding uh, what what really interests you in the long term. So that's probably my advice to students. So don't, don't stress out too much about not knowing exactly what you want to be. You just have to follow what interests you at the moment and then as you get more exposure, you read more literature, you talk to more people, you'll get a better idea as time goes on uh, what what you really want to do.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of happenstance involved and luck. And sometimes you just don't know what leads to what and doors that open that you couldn't have planned.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I think even if you if you talk to some of the professors here at Melbourne Uni and ask them what they did in their honours and their PhD, it'll be, you know, it'll probably be off left field compared to what they're doing now. Um, the, the more they think about research and and where they sort of fit into that, um, so you can end up in a very different place, but I, I think it all starts with a, an, an interest in science and, and discovery and, and you just take it from there.
1: Proteins and peptides are this invisible world to us. What would you like us to think about next time we hear the word peptides in the news?
2: I, I think what we do as, as humans is we think in pictures. Um, for example, you can't say, don't think about an elephant. It, it pops into your head. And, um in my, I, I'm also a tutor of, of first year chemistry, and I often use imagery to help students um, imagine what might be going on with some of the chemistry that they learn about. So I suppose using that approach, you could think of peptides as segments of, of protein. So if you think of protein, like maybe a ball of twine, it was, so it's a long linear string that it's all, that it's all scrunched up into a ball or, or, or various shapes. And a peptide is just, if you took a pair of scissors and snipped two little bits of a segment of that string, that would be your peptide. Um, So I I suppose in terms of the structure, if you're trying to imagine what might be going on on a molecular level, um, that's probably a, a good metaphor.
0: Dr.
1: Troy Attard, thank you. Thanks a
0: lot. Thank you to Dr. Troy Attard, part-time application specialist in the Melbourne Protein Characterisation Platform at the Bio21 Institute, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on experts. Stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 29, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.